Hello. How's it going? You all right? Are you, uh, are you up for a Bible study? Cool. <laughs> I mean, you went, uh, I heard, yeah, let's go. So, tough. <laughs> it's good to see you. Um, if you've not been um, with us before, you're joining for the first time, or um, maybe if you've been skiving the past few weeks, um, I don't know, watch the rugby or something. It's all over now, isn't it? Um, we are joining together as a church to study um, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and we're doing that by committing each week to read one chapter of Mark and then ask some searching questions of the text. Um, put your hand up if you read chapter two last week. Okay. Okay. So the aim is by the end of the series, every hand will be raised in victory having read the chapter the previous week. We're coming on to three this week. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I suggested some questions that you can use as you read the text for yourself um, each week. They were um, as follows. What did Mark, uh, why did Mark write this? What was his heart? What was he trying to do? Um, what did it mean for his readers? How would they have understood it? Um, what does it reveal about Jesus? Mark was a big fan of Jesus. And he's always telling us new things about him. Um, and what does it mean for me? What does it mean for you, for your life right now? And they might not be the only questions you ask. Um, hopefully not. But as you read, um, our hope is that they will provide you with a starting point and just allow you to go a little bit deeper into the text so that when you meet together in your life groups or if you're not in a life group with whoever you're currently studying the Bible with, you can start to share some of the things that you have learned from the text and you can kind of teach each other. Um, this is basically our first ever uh, DIY sermon series. Now Steve and I um, aren't wanting to be slack, we want to provide you with some insight and some guidance each Sunday, um, but really we're aware that we can't do justice to all that's contained within the chapter each week. And besides, God might put something different on your heart as you read the text than what he puts on our heart. And that's, that's okay, that's good. God is just as likely to speak to you through his word as he is to speak to Steve and I. So that's how we are doing this journey together. Okay, now if you want to catch up with previous weeks, you can do so online. Um, they're all on the website under resources and sermon series. But honestly, the best thing you can do is just to read the text for yourself. Just set aside half an hour each week, read the chapter through, read it slowly, think about it, pray about it, really get into God's word. That's our aim with this series. So, on to chapter three. Let me start with a question this morning. What choices do you find really difficult to make? What choices do you find difficult to make? I'm going to start with a game. Let's see how you do. All right, I'm going to present you with what I think are some difficult choices and see how you fare. So, first one. Coffee or tea? <laughs> right, let's, all right, before it devolves into chaos, let's, let's do hands up. Let's have hands up for coffee first. Coffee fans, wow. Okay, tea? Ooh. Oh, it's close. It's close. I think maybe coffee just takes it. What's happened to our British spirit? It's been, it's been broken through the rugby, hasn't it? Um, 
All right, what about this one? City break or beach holiday? Let's have hands up for city break first. I'm, I'm a city break fan. Okay, beach holiday? Uh, beaches have it. The beach has it. There we are. All right, the next one's really controversial. All right, so get ready. Chips with gravy or chips with curry sauce? <laughs> Maybe I'll, add a th I'll do chips with neither. We'll do, we'll do a third category. All right, chips with gravy. All right, that's, that's not bad. That's like, that's like 15. Chips with curry sauce? Okay, chips with nothing? <laughs> You're a plain bunch. You're a pl <laughs> All right, what about this one? Romantic comedy or action movie? I don't want to suggest there's going to be a gender divide because it's 2019, but we'll see. All right, romantic comedy, hands up. Okay, well done, Nathan. Um, action movie. <laughs> And Amy's got action movie, brilliant. Okay, good. <laughs> right, extra 30 minutes in bed or go for a run? <laughs> Hands up for 30 minutes in bed. <laughs> Literally everyone. Hands up for go for a run. Yes, well done. Philip, yeah! <laughs> go for a wheel. <laughs> Right, last one, last one. Chinese or Indian? Chinese or Indian? <laughs> hands up for Chinese. Okay, hands up for Indian. Oh, I reckon that's 50-50, down the middle. <laughs> I'm going to, um, I'll do. Let's, I'm going to finish there. I don't want to be the cause of a, of a church split this morning. Why did the church break up? Well, curry and chips. Um, why am I offering these choices, these silly choices? I think it's because chapter 3, for me, as I read it this week, um, was all about choices. I think Mark is wanting to present his readers with some tough decisions concerning their faith in Jesus. And don't forget that Mark's readers were constantly having to decide whether their faith was worth pursuing in the most difficult of circumstances, the most unimaginable persecution. And so as Mark continues his narrative through his book, he starts to present us with some different approaches to Jesus, and he starts to reveal to us the result of choosing to go God's way. And so chapter 3 begins with an incident that takes place on the Sabbath. Um, actually, this is part 2. Because um, those that have read chapter 2 will know Mark has already given us one story that took place on the Sabbath. It's when his followers helped themselves to a cheeky bit of corn out of the field. And the Pharisees said, whoa now! Hey, you can't be doing that. And for those who weren't here last week, the issue is that the Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. A day of rest. The first time we, we see this idea in Scripture is actually in the creation narrative. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it says, By the seventh day God had finished all the work he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because he rested from all the work of creating he had been doing. And that's fair enough, right? I mean, God had just created, well, everything. So I think he's entitled to, to put his feet up for the afternoon, I would say. 
And then later in Exodus, when the Israelites are receiving the Ten Commandments, commandment number four is remember the Sabbath. And the word Sabbath literally means the day of rest. Remember the day of rest in creation. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, the day of rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh and blessed it and made it holy. So that sounds pretty good to me, a whole day of rest. That's quite exciting news, I think. The difficulty came when people started to say, well, what do you mean by rest? I mean, rest, I guess, is not doing any work, but, but what's work? I mean, if you have a job, then you obviously shouldn't go and do that. But I don't know about you, even if I've got a day off, I tend to do something on the day off, clean the house or something like that. Is that considered work? What if your partner finally wants you to fix that thing in the bathroom that's been broken for six months? Is that considered work? I'm sorry, love, it's the Sabbath, I can't do it. Probably isn't going to wash. Most Sundays, Sean and I, most Saturdays, sorry, um, Sean and I spend at least 50% of the day trying to convince our kids to tidy their rooms. That sure feels like work. And they will tell you themselves it's the most horrendous, horrible, hard, tiring, degrading thing that we're making them do. Please no one show them Exodus 20 this morning. What about food? You know, if I've got a slow morning, I like to cook a full English, and that requires a bit of work. And so these, these questions start to come. Well, what exactly are we allowed to do on the Sabbath? What can we do? What can't we do? And so the rabbis, whose job it was to interpret the Scripture, they started to add these, these bylaws, these, these borders around the law to say, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. And in fact, what they did was create 39 categories of work. They said all of these things constitute work. I'll read them to you now. Sowing, ploughing, reaping, binding shoes, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying, untying, sewing two stitches, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, flaying, salting meat, curing hide, scraping hide, cutting hide up, writing two letters, erasing two letters, building, tearing a building down, extinguish a fire, kindling a fire, hitting with a hammer, taking an object from private domain to the public and transporting an object in the public domain. <laughs> they also prohibited travelling, buying, selling and any weekday activity that would interfere with the spirit of Sabbath. And so, it, as you can imagine, it, it rules out quite a lot. <laughs> There's very little that you can do. And so even today, Orthodox Jews won't use electricity on the Sabbath in case it sparks and, and kindles a fire. So smartphones are out. Doesn't matter how far you've got on Candy Crush. And even if you could use them, you can only write two letters anyway. I don't know how that works for emojis. Maybe that's a, a workaround. The only time you are permitted to break the Sabbath law is if someone's life is in danger, if someone um, is in mortal um, danger. So last week, Jesus told the Pharisees, who were telling the disciples off, two very shocking things. Firstly, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, guys, the Sabbath was intended to help people, not burden them. It was supposed to be something that reduced the kind of stress and the worry in your life, not create more. And the second thing he said, and this is the, 
this is the kicker, this is the offensive one. He said, the Son of Man, which was kind of his nickname for himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, guys, I'm in charge. What I say goes. And um, the Pharisees weren't thrilled with that because um, they thought they were the ones that were in charge. A little bit awkward. And so really what's happening is that Jesus is presenting them with a choice. He's saying, you know, you can go my way. And later on in Matthew he says, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and, and you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. He says, My yoke is easy and my burden light. The Sabbath was made for man. Or he says, in the words of Fleetwood Mac, you can go your own way. <laughs> and now that song will be in your head all day. <laughs> and guess what they did? Well, this is what Mark tells us really at the start of chapter 3. This is how it begins. He says that Jesus was in a synagogue. He says there was a man with a shriveled hand who was there. And he says that some of them, them being the Pharisees, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now if we just pause for a moment and remember that second question, what did this mean for Mark's readers, well, they themselves were being accused of burning Rome to the ground, of defying Roman law. They themselves were being watched very, very closely by the authorities. What might it mean for them to realize that Jesus too faced the same kind of opposition that they did? How might Jesus respond when the pressure to conform, to bow down to the authorities begins to mount? This was becoming a real page turner for Mark's readers. So the scene is set, the motivations of the antagonists revealed, what is Jesus going to do? Now the Pharisees knew that he could heal people. He might even go as far as to say that they expected him to heal, but they also knew it was the Sabbath. And if this man wasn't dying, to heal him would constitute um, work. And if Jesus really understood the law, he would ask the man to come back tomorrow. I read somewhere it was as though they knew Jesus could fly, but they wanted to see his pilot's license first. Was he going to do it their way or his way? Something that um, I find quite horrendous about this story is that, is that as well as knowing that Jesus could heal, they must have also known or had some understanding at least of Jesus' compassion, of Jesus' love for this man. They must have known on some level that Jesus would be motivated to help, not simply to leave the guy in the condition he was in. What's sad, of course, is that their motivation was to do anything but help. And so Jesus says to the man, stand up in front of everyone. Stand up in front of everyone. Put yourself for a moment in this guy's shoes. You're being asked in this time and place by this, this rabbi, this teacher, this, this healer to stand up in front of everyone there, to put your infirmity on display, to show your weakness. To stand not only in front of the people, but in front of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, those who were, who were watching you closely to see what choice you might make. Will you stand with Jesus or not? How much do you trust him? What must Mark's readers have made of this? Was Jesus asking them to stand as well? To stand up in front of everyone, including those who wanted to do them harm? You know, much later on, Jesus says to his followers, you'll be my witnesses. 
in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And witnesses in a courtroom are required to take the stand in front of everyone. And that's exactly what this man chooses to do. And then Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he says to them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? But they choose to remain silent. The prosecution has nothing to say. It's another choice that Jesus is offering them. If they won't go his way, then maybe at very least they will engage with him in a dialogue. They will, they will talk it out. They will have a conversation where perhaps Jesus can reveal to them something of God's heart for this man. You see, I don't think Jesus in this moment is trying to point out a clever loophole in the law. I think he's trying to help them to see that God's heart is always for the broken and always for the damaged. I mean, he said it last week, right? Mark 2, he said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. There's an, if there's an opportunity to, to bring some light into somebody's life, we should always take it. It doesn't matter if it's the, the Sabbath or, or Christmas or International Talk Like a Pirate Day. It's always lawful to do good. If a life can be saved in some small way, if someone's circumstances can be altered for the better, if you can make a difference in somebody's life, then God is for it. In fact, he loves it. Jesus says in John 10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. But the leaders, they look at the crowds and they choose silence. They choose not even to explore the possibility that they may have made their religion into something that it was never meant to be. This, this burdensome, heavy yoke that Jesus is trying to free them from. Jesus is desperate to free them from. I don't know this, but as I read it and picture it in my mind's eyes, I imagine they can't even make eye contact with him. I imagine they look at their, their toes and just wait to see what he does. What does he do? It says he looks around at them in anger and was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. It's not often that we see the anger of Jesus in the Gospels, but when we do, it's always to do with matters of injustice. Jesus doesn't get angry at personal insults or slights, else the cross would have looked very different indeed. But when someone is prevented from experiencing God's love for themselves, that's when Jesus really starts to lose it. And the truth is that there was something evil in the motivations of the Pharisees. They were willing for this man to remain exactly as he was, knowing full well that Jesus could help him. And so now Jesus has a choice of his own to make. He can call them out for their, their hardness of heart, their hypocrisy, their ineffectiveness to lead people to God. <laughs> and in fact, later on he does. Matthew 23, he royally tears them a new one. Um, it's fantastic. I suggest you read it for yourself later. But on that occasion, there was nobody waiting for help. This time he chooses to channel his anger and his frustration into something good something worthwhile. He chooses to make a difference in this person's life. 
And so he turns to the man and he says, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. Think about that for a moment. The, the man's hand was, was shriveled. It was, it was withered away. Jesus was asking him to do something that for him would have been physically impossible to do. Man could have said, how can I do that, Lord? He could have said, you know what, I, I just don't think I can do that. He could have said, pull my finger, Lord. No, maybe not that one. It's required this monumental leap of faith. And Mark's readers, who were perhaps beginning to feel like their faith might fail them, needed to trust Jesus completely, just like this man chooses to do. And as he stretches out his hand, it's completely restored. Now, one of the things that struck me as I read this, this story this week that I never really thought about before is, is that, you know, Jesus in this moment, he's being watched by the leaders, the teachers of the law, to see if he will break the Sabbath rules. But Jesus doesn't really do anything. In the same way that his followers are the ones that, that eat the corn out of the field, in this story, it's the man that does the work. It's the guy who puts his trust in Jesus and stretches out his hand. Jesus doesn't walk over to him. He doesn't touch him or rub ointment or anything like that on him. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus didn't perform the healing, but if the Pharisees were looking for a way to accuse Jesus, they had a very thin case indeed. Of course, it didn't really matter to them because their minds were already made up. Their hearts were already hard, if you like. And Mark reveals the strength of their convictions to us in verse 6 when he says the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians were not friends. The Pharisees were a religious party. The Herodians were a political party. They supported King Herod, hence the name, the Roman client king. And yet their disdain for this new rabbi, this teacher, this healer, brought them together as they sought to murder him. And what had Jesus done? Really, what had he done? He'd allowed his hungry followers to eat a few grain of corn and he'd healed a man who had no use of his hands. Nothing evil. Nothing deserving of death. What about Mark's readers? Well, the early church set up feeding programs to feed the hungry. They prayed for the sick. They continued the work of Jesus on earth and yet they too were being plotted against. You can start to see why Mark writes as he does, can't you? Why did Mark write this? Well, he wrote to show his readers that they were on the right course, that Jesus faced the same trials that they were facing, that despite um, his very life being under threat, Jesus still chose to go God's way. What did it mean for his readers? Well, it meant that they could trust Jesus, that they too could continue to stand up in front of everybody, including those in authority, and they were given the assurance that their faith was not misplaced. What does it reveal about Jesus? Well, it shows that Jesus understands God's laws better than we do. That if we're trying to figure out how to live our lives for God, then we need to look to Jesus first. And what does it mean for me? Well, it means that I have an example to follow. It means that I too can look for opportunities to lift people up, to help them out of whatever circumstance they're facing. That I should never allow religious practices or expectations to get in the way of me showing God's love and mercy to somebody else. It means that I can put my faith in Jesus and that I too can stand up for him in the face 
of difficulties. Now, I might not face the same kind of opposition that Mark's readers did. But, you know, sometimes standing up for Jesus can be uncomfortable. It might mean that I have to sacrifice some dignity. But that's okay, because I think Mark shows us that this man's decision to stand for Jesus led to great things in his life. He was probably kicked out of the synagogue, but he was healed. He was restored. He was made whole, and I know which I would prefer. So when Jesus asks me to stand up for him, I can have the confidence to do so, knowing that he won't let me down. How are we doing? That's the first six verses of 35. <laughs> Mark's gospel, it's so rich and it's so vibrant if we're just prepared to, to scratch a little bit below the surface and ask some questions of the text. We can discover all sorts of wonderful truths for ourselves. Right, I'm going to let you um, watch a video for three, four minutes, which is going to show the kind of latter half of the chapter. Uh, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to offer just a few final thoughts on that last section. I'm not going to go into quite as much detail as I have for um, the remaining verses. So just look at the screen. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. 
His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. <coughs> it's dramatic, isn't it? Um, don't forget, you can watch all of those free on uh, YouTube. Um, just type in Lumo, L-U-M-O, and Mark, or they're on the Bible app, the um, uh, version Bible app, they're all on there as well. Um, so I don't want to go into uh, quite as much uh, detail as I did with the first six verses, because I want to leave the rest of the chapter really for you to look at yourselves. Um, and there was a bit on the chapter that not shown on the video as well, just after the bit that we read this morning. Um, but I just want to share with you maybe just a couple of things that I noticed as I read through um, the chapter this week. I said at the start that this chapter is all to do with choices. Um, and choices have a lot to do uh, with our motivation. We are motivated to make certain choices. The Pharisees and the Herodians were motivated to get rid of Jesus, and so they chose to put their differences aside and plot together. The man with the, the withered hand was motivated to get better, and so he chose to put his trust in Jesus, his faith in Jesus. And this theme continues through the chapter. We're told in verse 8 that many people flock to see Jesus from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and the regions across the Jordan, Tyre and, and Sidon. And they're motivated because they, they hear about the things that Jesus is doing, his, his healings and his um, miracles, and so they choose to come and see for themselves. We hear about his family who are, are motivated by concern. It says in verse 21, they thought he was out of his mind, and so they choose to come and try and collect him and, and take him home. I'm sure many of the early Christians were considered out of their mind also. We read about the teachers of the law who were motivated to discredit Jesus, to denounce his actions, and so they choose to travel from Jerusalem to come and pour slander on him. And all of these people, they make choices based upon their motivations, but maybe the most significant choice in this whole chapter is Jesus' choice of his disciples, of his apostles. He chooses these 12 individuals out of the many, many people who flocked to see him, Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas and James and Thaddeus and Judas. Why does Jesus choose these 12. What was his motivation for doing so? Well, I guess he, 
He needed people to continue the work, to help him establish the kingdom of God on earth, to heal the sick and so on. Um, he also needed them to, to, to continue once he had gone and left them. It's true that Mark's gospel moves at quite a pace, but Jesus' period of ministry was actually very, very short. It was only three years, and already in chapter 3 we're hearing about the plot to kill him. The wheels, if you like, are in, in, motiv- in motion. But what motivated Jesus to choose these 12 specifically? What was it? Maybe their jobs? Four of them were fishermen. Matthew, we found out last week, was a tax collector. It's likely Judas did something with money as he ended up as the treasurer. Um, but we're not really told what the others did, so probably not their jobs. Maybe it was their um, political persuasion. Matthew worked for the government. And then again, Simon was a zealot. That meant he belonged to a group of Jews that, that wanted independence from Rome. They were both leavers and remainers in Jesus' followers. <laughs> Just let that truth sink in for a minute. If you take nothing else from this morning. <laughs> Maybe it was their religious fervor. I mean, they were all Jewish, but then again, none of them were studying under other rabbis that we know of or working at the temple or anything like that. They were just sort of these ordinary run-of-the-mill guys. Perhaps it was their personality, their temperament. But then again, they were all quite different, weren't they? We have the um, Boordanese, the Sons of Thunder, who were really kind of hot-headed. We have Matthew, who last week threw a house party. Whoop, whoop. Um, We have... Peter, who I've heard described as the the disciple, um, very impulsive and emotional. Thomas, who was prone to extremes and later full of doubt. They don't really come off very well, do they, in, this, in the Gospels? They're flawed, ordinary individuals. And on the, the face of it, there doesn't seem to be any particular reason that Jesus chooses them, except perhaps out of everyone mentioned in this chapter, Their motivation was the purest. You see, at the end of the chapter, when Jesus' um, family are desperately trying to get to him, to take him home, it says in verse 34 that Jesus looked at those seated in a circle around him, his closest, his followers, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Sometimes I wonder if the disciples argued about which one was the mother. But of course, Jesus' point was that his family, those closest to him, those who really understood him, were the ones who did the will of God. They were the ones who did the will of God. And I'm sure um, you might argue the disciples weren't actually that great at doing the will of God. But the point is they were willing to try. They were willing to learn, to seek after him, to follow him, to look to establish the kingdom of God in their lives. They weren't motivated by anger or pride or by fear, but by a genuine desire to fulfill God's will in their lives. And as a result, they got to be a part of his family. And what's true of the disciples is true for us too. If we're willing and motivated to put God's will first, Jesus counts us as part of his family also. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter if we're leavers or remainers, fishermen or bankers. The only thing that counts is that we are willing to choose to follow him. I wonder if the band would come and join me on stage. I want to finish this morning um, with a reading from one of Paul's letters, actually. Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians. 
And I want to read it to you because I think it sums up a lot of the themes that we've been speaking about this morning. I think it sums up what's contained in Mark 3 quite nicely. I'm going to read it to you in the message. I'm not going to um, put it on screen. Um, I just want to read it to you. The message is a a reworking of the text. It's easier to to understand in modern language. Just listen to these um, words as we prepare our hearts for worship. It's Ephesians 5, 1 to 10. Watch what God does and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behaviour from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you, keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Don't allow love to turn into lust, setting off a downhill slide into sexual promiscuity, filthy practices or bullying or greed. Though some tongues just love the taste of gossip, those who follow Jesus have better uses for language than that. Don't talk dirty or silly. That kind of talk doesn't fit our style. Thanksgiving is our dialect. You can be sure that using people or religion or things just for what you can get out of them, the usual variations on idolatry, will get you nowhere. And certainly nowhere near the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. Don't let yourselves get taken in by religious smooth talk. God gets furious with people who are full of religious sales talk, but want nothing to do with him. Don't even hang around with people like that. You groped your way through that murk once, but no longer. You're out in the open now. The bright light of Christ makes your way plain. So no more stumbling around. Get on with it. The good, the right, the true. These are the actions appropriate for daylight hours. Figure out what will please Christ and then do it. What choice will you make this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your words to us this morning. These words contained here in Mark chapter 3. Father, I thank you that your heart is always for the broken and the lost and the hurting. And I thank you for the example that we have in Jesus, that he would put the needs of others ahead of his own, that he would do anything to demonstrate God's love and that his anger only boils to the surface when he sees that people are being prevented from experiencing God's love for themselves. Father, I pray that you would help us to be ambassadors of your love this week. Father God, that we would look for those opportunities around us to lift people up, to celebrate them, to help them, to make a difference in their life and to demonstrate your unending, ceaseless love. Father, I thank you as well that you have chosen us. God, not that we deserved it, not that we did anything by our own merit to make us worthy of following you, but I pray that we would be good followers of you this week. Father, that we would look to you first. In Jesus' name, amen.